Let's pray. Our gracious God and Heavenly Father, we were separated, alienated, estranged, hopeless, godless, and all alone in the world. But now in your Son, we who were once far off have been brought near by the blood of Christ. So, Lord Jesus, we pray that by your Spirit and through your Word, you would come now and preach peace to us, preach peace to those who are far off and to those who are near, and restore to us the joy of our salvation. So, open our eyes now that we might behold wonderful things in your beautiful word. And what we know not, please teach us. And what we have not, please give us. And what we are not, please make us. All for the glory and praise of your dearly beloved Son who lives with you, who reigns with you, together with the Holy Spirit. One God forever blessed and forever praised. Amen. Have you ever been lost on February 5th, 1981, Stephen Callahan was racing his sailboat from Spain to Antigua when suddenly his boat sank in a storm. He escaped with his life in his life raft, but he was utterly lost at sea. And this is how he described that sense of lostness in a journal that was recovered later. Fright, pain, remorse, hopelessness. My feelings are bundled up in confusion, devouring me like a black hole gobbles up light. I ache with cold. I feel so vulnerable. I have no more second chances. All my protection is gone. I am lost. We've probably never been lost at sea, but according to the word of God, we've all been lost. And so perhaps a better question, a more urgent question for each of us this morning is not, have you ever been lost? but have you ever been found? What does it mean to be lost? What does it mean to be found? Well, there's no chapter in all the Bible that answers those questions more beautifully than Luke chapter 15. So if you have your Bible, please open up to Luke 15. We'll be in this chapter for the next three hours. No, I'm just kidding. <laughs> it's New Year's Eve, come on. If you're using a pew Bible, you can find this on page 874. I do joke, there's so much in this chapter, beloved, but we'll only be here for a few minutes. What does it mean to be lost? What does it mean to be found? Well, in this chapter, Jesus Christ tells a threefold parable. The parable of the lost sheep, verses three to seven. The parable of the lost coin, verses eight to 10. And then 
most famous of all, the parable of the prodigal son, verses 11 to 32. And the theme of this whole chapter, the main idea of this entire chapter is this. God's joy in seeking and saving the lost. This whole chapter is intended to persuade our hearts that God has infinite delight, infinite joy in seeking and in saving the lost. This whole chapter resounds with heavenly joy, celebrating, rejoicing with music and dancing the divine recovery of the lost. What does it mean to be lost? What does it mean to be found? This is what Holy Scripture says. Now the tax collectors and sinners were all drawing near to him, to hear him. And the Pharisees and the scribes grumbled, saying, This man receives sinners and eats with them. So he told them this parable. What man of you, having a hundred sheep, if he's lost one of them, does not leave the 99 in the open country and go after the one that is lost until he finds it? When he has found it, he lays it on his shoulders, rejoicing. And when he comes home, he calls together his friends and neighbors, saying, Rejoice with me, for I have found my sheep that was lost. Just so I tell you, there will be more joy in heaven over one sinner who repents than over 99 righteous persons who need no repentance. Or what woman, having 10 several coins, if she loses one coin, does not light a lamp and sweep the house and seek diligently until she finds it? And when she's found it, she calls together her friends and neighbors saying, rejoice with me. For I found the lost coin that I'd lost. Just so I tell you, there is joy before the angels of God over one sinner who repents. And he said, there was a man who had two sons. The younger of them said to his father, Father, give me the share of property that is coming to me. And he divided his property between them. Not many days later, the younger son gathered all that he had and took a journey into a far country. And there he squandered his property in reckless living. And when he had spent everything, a severe famine arose in that country, and he began to be in need. So he went and hired himself out to one of the citizens of that country, who sent him into his fields to feed pigs. And he was longing to be fed with the pods that the pigs ate. And no one gave him anything. But when he had come to himself, he said, How many of my father's hired servants have more than enough bread? But I perish here in hunger. I will arise and go to my father and will say to him, Father, I have sinned against heaven and before you. I'm no longer worthy to be called your son. Treat me as one of your hired servants. And he arose and came to his father. But while he was still a long way off, his father saw him and felt compassion and ran and embraced him and kissed him. 
And the son said to him, Father, I have sinned against heaven and before you. I'm no longer worthy to be called your son. But the father said to his servants, bring quickly the best robe and put it on him and put a ring on his hand and shoes on his feet and bring the fattened calf and kill it and let us eat and celebrate. For this, my son was dead and is alive again. He, is, he was lost and is found. And they began to celebrate. Now his older son was in the field. And as he came and drew near to the house, he heard music and dancing. And he called one of the servants and asked what these things meant. And he said to him, your brother has come. And your father has killed the fattened calf because he's received him back safe and sound. But he was angry and refused to go in. His father came out and entreated him. But he answered his father, look, these many years I've served you. I've never disobeyed your command, yet you never gave me a young goat that I might celebrate with my friends. But when this son of yours came, who's devoured your property with prostitutes, you killed a fattened calf for him. And he said to him, son, you're always with me and all that is mine is yours. It was fitting to celebrate and be glad. For this, your brother was dead and is alive. He was lost and is found. Beloved, my prayer for you is that you would delight in Jesus Christ, the one who is full of grace and the one who came into the world to seek and to save the lost. Let's walk through this passage verse by verse. I'll give you some headings to kind of keep up along the way, and then I'm going to draw a few implications for us at the end. So we pick up the story in Luke 15. Jesus, we know, is on his way to Jerusalem. Jesus has been ministering in the north near the Sea of Galilee, and in chapter 9, verse 51, we're told he set his face like flint to go to Jerusalem. And so Jesus begins the, the long journey to Jerusalem, the long journey to the cross. And along the way, the religious leadership of Israel has been watching him. We're told in chapter 11, verse 54, they've been listening to him, lying in wait to try to catch Jesus in something he might say. But in our passage this morning, the religious leaders of Israel, the Pharisees and the scribes, they're not so much upset about what Jesus says, but rather about what Jesus does. Not so much by his words, but by his actions. What is Jesus doing that's upsetting the Pharisees and the scribes? He is receiving. He is welcoming. He is spending time with sinners and tax collectors and what makes it worse, he's actually eating with them. We start this morning, number one, with a shameless reception. If you're taking notes, that's the cue. A shameless reception, verses one and two. Look at it again with me. Now the tax collectors and sinners were all drawing near to hear him. And the Pharisees and the scribes grumbled, saying, this man receives sinners and eats with them. In verses 1 and 2, we find a shameless reception. 
These sinners, these tax collectors, these are kind of the worst of the worst in the minds of the Pharisees and the scribes. And they're all flocking to Jesus. We're told why. Look at your Bible. You see that infinitive at the end of verse 1. They wanted to hear him. Jesus is proclaiming the gospel of the kingdom. He's announcing the good news of the forgiveness of sins in his name. And so sinners are drawing near to hear him. But the Pharisees and the scribes, they despised, especially tax collectors. Why? Tax collectors were traitors. They were working with the Roman government, right? So they're traitors. Number two, they're dishonest thieves. We know from from later on, Zacchaeus tells us in Luke 19 that he defrauded people. It's the same thing that John the Baptist said about tax collectors in Luke 3. They took more than they needed to skim off the top. So they, they were dishonest thieves. And then thirdly, they were unclean because they spent so much time interacting with Gentiles. But the Pharisees, they avoided sin in their minds by avoiding sinners. They wouldn't come close to the unclean, defiled people like the tax collectors. And notice verse two, what's their response? When they see Jesus eating with these people, what do they do? Verse two, they grumbled, they complained, they murmured. And that word is used in the Greek translation of the Old Testament throughout the wanderings of Israel in the wilderness. Israel grumbled, right? Well, the Pharisees and the scribes are following in the faithless footsteps of their forefathers. They're grumbling, they're complaining. Instead of rejoicing that sinners are coming to hear about the forgiveness of sins, they grumble. This man welcomes sinners and eats with them. Well, how does Jesus respond to this self-righteous grumbling? That brings us to number two, a sensational rejoicing. A sensational rejoicing. Look at verses three to 10. Jesus responds to this self-righteous grumbling of the Pharisees and scribes by beginning to tell a three-part parable. And in verses three to 10, he gives us the first two parts of the parable. And these parables, as it were, are intended to demonstrate the sensational rejoicing of heaven. First, in verses three to seven, the parable of the lost sheep. We read it just a few minutes ago. It's straightforward, it's simple. We can all see what's going on here. A sheep, a shepherd as it were, leaves the 99. He leaves his 99 sheep and he seeks to bring back the sheep that is lost, the one who has gone away. And so he goes out into the wilderness, he gets the lost sheep, he finds the sheep, he rejoices, and he brings the sheep home. And he calls his friends and neighbors to rejoice with him. And then Jesus makes a comparison. Look at verse seven. Don't look at me, look at your Bible, look at verse seven. Just so I tell you, there will be more joy in heaven over one sinner who repents than over 99 righteous persons who need no repentance. Jesus is not saying that there are people in the world that don't need to repent. 
He's, he's clearly saying that there are some people who don't think they need to repent because they have no sin. They don't think they're a sinner. Earlier in Luke's gospel, the Pharisees and scribes got mad that he was eating with sinners. Chapter 5. And Jesus says to them in chapter 5, verse 31, those who are well have no need of a what? Y'all wake up now. A physician, right? It's those who are sick that need a physician. And then Jesus says, I have not come to call the righteous, but sinners to repentance. The Pharisees and the scribes think they're well. They don't think they have anything to repent of. But their grumbling, brothers and sisters, highlights the difference that the God of all grace in heaven has when sinners repent. All of heaven rejoices. Heaven, listen, beloved, is not waiting for nine sinners or 99 sinners or 999 sinners to throw a party. God and all the hosts of heaven rejoice when one sinner repents. Look at verses 8 to 10. Jesus tells another story, a parable of the lost coin, verses 8 to 10. A woman has 10 silver coins. These are drachmas. It's like one day's wage. And she loses one of them. Notice, where does she lose the coin? At home. I can never find our remote. I haven't found a remote in like three years at our house. Anyway, I can relate. She loses something at home. What does she do? She lights a lamp. She sweeps the house. She searches carefully, diligently, and then she finds the lost coin at home. And when she finds it, she rejoices. She calls all of her friends to rejoice with her. Verse 10, he makes the same comparison. Look at it in verse 10. Just so I tell you, there is joy before the angels of God over one sinner who repents. Okay, brothers and sisters, what is Jesus doing? He's doing this. Jesus is looking at the Pharisees and scribes who are grumbling when sinners are drawing near to him to hear the gospel. And Jesus is saying, when one sinner repents, all of heaven rejoices, and yet you're grumbling. How could you possibly delight in the recovery of a lost animal or a single found coin and not celebrate with sensational joy with the recovery of an internal soul. J.C. Ryle said, one single saved soul shall outlive all the kingdoms of this world. So Jesus then turns and tells the story of stories. We're gonna spend most of our time this morning here. It's the most famous parable that's ever been told in the history of the world the parable of the prodigal son. But as we study this passage, you all know this already, this is really not a story about one lost son. It's a story, a parable about two lost sons and a loving father. And the reason I didn't just jump straight to this passage is that these first two stories, beloved, prepare us for the third story. Did you notice in the first story, a sheep gets lost by going away. 
In the second story, the coin gets lost at home. And so Jesus tells a story now about a younger son who gets lost by going away. And an older son who is lost at home. There are two kinds of lostness, my friend. And there's only one way to be found. This third story begins, number three, with a shocking rebellion. A shocking rebellion. Look at verses 11 to 16. Verse 11. And he said, there was a man who had two sons. And the younger of them said to his father, Father, give me the share of property that's coming to me. Now we've read this verse so often, perhaps we don't get shocked like we should at this request. This is a shocking rebellion. The younger son is not asking for a loan. According to Deuteronomy 21.17, that the firstborn son, the older son, was entitled to receive double of that of his brothers as an inheritance. But this is the younger son. And so in essence, he's asking his father for one third of the inheritance that would come to him once his father is dead. And so what he wants is full control of his inheritance. He wants it now. For a Jewish son to demand this is utterly, it's unthinkable. Children, listen, it's like this younger son is going to his dad and saying, Dad, can we just go ahead and act like you're already dead so that I can get what's coming to me? And yet amazingly, the father grants his request. Look. And he divided his property between them. That is between the two sons. The older son gets two-thirds. The younger son gets a third. And no sooner has this young man gotten the property, he clearly liquidates it. He sells it at a discount because he doesn't want to stick around. He wants to leave. And so this is where the the prodigal son gets his name. We're told that he, he leaves town with all of his money, whatever he sold, And we're told that he goes into the far country and we're told that he squandered, he wasted, he, he scattered his property in reckless living, in foolish living, in wild living. I think the King James says riotous living. He had a riot of a time. Basically, the younger son has taken his portion of the inheritance, turned it into cash, and run into the far country to party. But his party doesn't last very long. Look at verse 14. When he'd spent everything, a severe famine arose in that country, and he began to be in need. So he went and hired himself out. He, he stuck himself to one of the citizens of that country who sent him into his field to feed pigs. When he was, he was longing to be fed with the pods that the pigs ate, and no one gave him anything. Now, we can assume, since Jesus is talking to Jewish people, that this character is Jewish. Now, just think about how bad it's gotten, how quickly for this man, okay? He's committed a shocking rebellion against his father. He's brought public shame to his family. 
He's abandoned his responsibilities. He's blown his entire inheritance. And now he's penniless, homeless, friendless, and he's shameless. He's actually hired himself as a day laborer to a Gentile pig farmer. And he's not only feeding pigs, which we know from Leviticus 11.7 are unclean animals. We're told he's actually eating with the swine and longing to eat their food. Now, I know y'all love pigs, but this is bad. This younger son has become utterly contemptible. He's filthy. He's unclean. He's shameful. He's dishonorable. He's a disobedient disgrace. This is a shocking rebellion. And that brings us to number four, a scandalous reception. A scandalous reception. Verses 17 to 24. A poet, Robert Frost, once said that home is where when you have to go there, they have to take you what? They have to take you in. And so just when this son, younger son, hits rock bottom, he starts thinking about home. And he starts thinking about his daddy. He starts thinking about the goodness and the grace and the generosity of his father. Look at verse 17. But when he came to himself, he came to his senses, and he said to himself, how many of my father's hired servants have more than enough bread, but I perish here with hunger. I will arise and go to my father, and I will say to him, Father, I've sinned against heaven and before you. I'm no longer worthy to be called your son. Treat me as one of your hired servants. This son isn't thinking he's going to be welcomed back into the family. His father doesn't have to take him in. He's envisioning returning home not as a son, but as a servant. He's even prepared his speech. He's got the speech ready. Treat me as one of your servants. He thinks, you know what? I'm starving, but even the servants in my dad's house have bread. And so he acknowledges his sin against God and against his father, and he goes home. And he's going home because he wants to begin to get to work, to earn his way back into his father's favor, to pay back what he blew. Verse 20, and he arose and came to his father. Now remember, beloved, who's he talking to? Who's Jesus telling this story to? He's telling this story to the Pharisees and the scribes. Those were the PhDs in the Old Testament. They knew Deuteronomy 21. You may have been thinking earlier, why are we reading such a random passage? Deuteronomy 21, what does the law of God say to do to this kind of son? What does the law of God say to do to a rebellious son who's a glutton and a drunkard, a disobedient son like this? Well, he's supposed to be stoned to death. He's supposed to be stoned to death outside the city gates. This younger son deserves the death penalty. He's brought nothing but shame and disgrace to his entire family. So what happens next is an absolutely 
scandalous reception. Verse 20, but while he was still a long way off, his father, what? Saw him and felt compassion and ran and embraced him and kissed him. Brothers and sisters, nearly everything in verse 20 is a scandal. The father saw him even when he was far from home. This means, of course, you all know this, that the father was what? Looking for him. He's looking. He's scanning the horizon for even a silhouette of his young boy. And when the father saw him, he doesn't get angry. He's filled with compassion, with mercy. His heart goes out to him. What motivates the father to run? A heart of mercy, a heart of grace. He runs out to his son. Middle Eastern noblemen don't typically run, but this one's run. This one runs. He runs. Why? You ever thought why? I think it's obvious. The father wants to get to his son before anybody else does. He doesn't want anyone in the city, anyone in the family, anyone at all to heap shame on his son or to throw stones at his son. He runs and covers his shameful son with his love. He hugs him. He embraces him, pig smell and all. And he begins kissing him. He kept on kissing him. Verse 21, and the son said to him, Father, I've sinned against heaven and before you. That's true. I'm no longer worthy to be called your son. That's true. But before he can even finish his speech, the father cuts him off turns and gives orders to his servants. Quick, bring the best robe, bring the first robe, bring the high-ranking robe and put it on him and put a ring on his finger and put sandals on his feet. This is, brothers and sisters, this is scandalous. This is over the top. At this point, the Pharisees and the scribes are booing. They're booing. This is, instead of shaming the son. The father bears the shame himself. Instead of putting his son on probation, he showers his son with grace. He doesn't just tolerate his son. He receives him. He welcomes him. Not as a servant, but as a royal son. The father treats his son like royalty. He isn't a servant, he's family. And instead of gathering rocks to stone him, they gather up some charcoal for a barbecue. Amen. Verse 23. And bring the fattened calf and kill it and let us eat and celebrate. For this my son was dead and is alive again. He was lost and is found. Remember 
the younger son imagined that he might be given some bread. Verse 17. But the fattened calf is killed for him. The calf fattened for the slaughter. The calf that's kept for special occasions. So contextualize this. Just imagine hundreds and hundreds of pounds of Wright's brisket. This wasteful son gets the best robe and he gets the finest feast. Beloved, it would have been more realistic for the father to kill his son than for the father to kill the fattened calf for his son. But instead of a funeral, they have a welcome home party. And they began to celebrate. Now at this point in the story, Christ's audience would have been wondering, where's the older son? The older son had the responsibility in Jewish culture to be the one organizing the family feasts. Where's the older son? He's not even there to welcome his younger brother home. He's not even at the party. Where is he? Well, that brings us to our last heading, number five, a shameful reaction. A shameful reaction, verses 25 to 32. Now his older son was in the field, and he came and drew near to the house, and he heard music and dancing. He called one of his servants and asked what these things meant. And he said to him, your brother has come, and your father has killed the fattened calf, because he has received him back safe and sound. But he was angry and refused to go in. Now we finally meet the older son. But if you've paid attention, you've actually already met him in the story. He's a Pharisee. He's a Pharisee. Instead of rejoicing that sinners are being received and forgiven, what is, what is he doing? He's angry and he's grumbling. Verse 28, he came out, the father comes out and entreats him. He begs him to come in. But he answered his father. Listen to the way he talks to his dad. He doesn't even address him as father. Look, these many years I've served you and I've never disobeyed your command, yet you never gave me a young goat that I may celebrate with my friends. But when this son of yours came who's devoured your property with prostitutes, you killed the fattened calf for him. You see, this is just shameful. It's a shameful reaction. Imagine talking to your father that way. The older son stayed home and he's just as lost as the younger son who went away. He's just as far from the father's heart as the younger son was. He sees his father as a stingy boss. Sinclair Ferguson put it like this. This is a legalistic heart. Such a heart sees the Lord, listen, as a slave master and not as a gracious father. The NIV brings it out really well. Listen to the way the NIV puts it. Look 
all these years I've been slaving for you and I've never disobeyed your orders. Yet you never gave me even a young goat so I could celebrate with my friends. You see, the older son doesn't want to celebrate with his father just like the younger son who went away and partied with his own friends. Imagine the older son doesn't even have his father on his guest list for a party. He doesn't think he needs to repent. I've never disobeyed your commands, he says. Brothers and sisters, this is called self-righteous self-deception. And instead of rebuking this shameful, disobedient elder son, notice the kindness and grace of the father. Look at verse 31. And he said to him, son, you're always with me and all that is mine is yours. It was fitting to celebrate and be glad for this your brother was dead and he's alive. He was lost and is found. Beloved, I think my favorite word in this entire passage is right there in verse 31. That word son. Even here, this loving father lavishes grace on an unworthy son. He calls him son. He explains that when the dead are given life and when the lost are found, there's only one way to respond. It's to rejoice. What is Jesus doing here? The chapter ends and we're never told. Is the elder son, the older son, is he going to come in and enjoin the party? Brothers and sisters, it's an invitation to the Pharisees and the scribes. It's an offer to enter the party, to enter and join the feast, to celebrate the Father's grace and mercy. So let's conclude. I want to draw, there's a lot we could say, but I just want to draw two brief implications for us as we think about the end of this year and the beginning of a new year, Lord willing. The first way I want us to think about responding is number one, this text calls us to receive God's amazing grace in Christ. To receive God's amazing grace in Christ. Hope you notice that this passage describes two kinds of lostness, unrighteous law-breaking and self-righteous law-keeping. When you think about the lost, which one do you think about most? Unrighteous law-breaking, that's the younger son, or self-righteous law-keeping, that's the older son. You can run away from God by trying to break all the rules. You can run away from God by trying to keep all the rules. You can be lost by going away 
into the far country. And you can also be lost at home. Unrighteousness and self-righteousness are both equally damning. We all need the perfect righteousness of another. Children, listen to me. I hope you see that you can grow up and be close to the things of God. You can grow up around Christianity and yet not know your need to be saved. Jesus is that good shepherd who goes into the far country to seek and to save the lost. All of us like sheep have gone astray, but the Lord has laid on him the iniquity of us all. By the knowledge of this one, the righteous one, many are accounted righteous through his resurrection from the dead. Friend, if you're not a follower of Jesus Christ, Luke 15 is a summons to receive him, to receive Jesus Christ by turning from your sins, turning from whatever it is you're trusting in and receiving Jesus Christ in the empty hands of faith. He came into the world to seek those who are far off and those who are near by dying and rising again for our sins from the dead. Maybe this morning you identify with the prodigal. Maybe you've utterly wasted everything that God has given you. Maybe you're tempted even this morning to try to work your way back into some kind of relationship with God. Friend, listen to me. On the authority of the word of the living God, there is more grace in Christ than sin in you. Your only hope is grace. Your only hope is Christ. Christ crucified, Christ buried, Christ risen from the dead, Christ offering the world this morning life and forgiveness and grace. Grace is your only hope. And he offers amazing grace to the worst of sinners. So friend, this day through the preaching of the good news, Jesus himself is calling you to trust in him. Turn from your sins and trust in Jesus Christ and be saved. Receive God's amazing grace in Christ. Parents and grandparents, let this be a reminder to us that Jesus Christ is willing and able to save even the prodigals. Never stop praying. Never stop giving up. Never, never give up. Never stop praying. Even, even when our children or grandchildren are far from the Lord, his saving grace is never far from them. This morning, receive God's amazing grace in Christ. Number two, and finally, 
This text, more than anything, is calling us as followers of Jesus and as a church to rejoice in God's amazing grace in Christ. The whole passage is calling us to rejoice in God's amazing grace in Christ. Beloved, maybe you've never noticed this before, but there's something astounding here. Did you notice there's actually a third son in Luke 15? There's a third son in Luke 15. He's the one telling the story. The beloved son, the obedient son, the Lord Jesus Christ. Remember earlier what we read about in Luke, sorry, Deuteronomy 21? It prescribed God's punishment against a rebellious and sinful son. But do you know what comes right after that passage? The next verse in Deuteronomy 21. Deuteronomy 21, 22. And if a man has committed a crime punishable by death and he's put to death and you hang him on a tree, his body shall not remain all night on the tree, but you shall bury him the same day. For anyone hung on a tree is cursed by God. University Baptist Church, here's God's amazing grace to us in Christ. The very one who's the perfectly obedient son, the beloved son, the only begotten son, the one who's fully pleasing to his father in everything. He took the place for rebellious sons and daughters who deserve to die. We deserve death, not him. The one who told the parable of the two lost sons and the loving father was on his way to Jerusalem to die. He was on his way where he himself would suffer in our place for our sins outside the city gates. Beloved, do you know what that's called? Grace. Grace, amazing grace. This grace has redeemed us. This grace has brought us into a relationship with our Father in heaven. And this Son who died and rose again is preparing a feast for us in heaven, in a new world to come, a heavenly banquet with Abraham and Isaac and Jacob and all nations who've trusted in the Savior. He's preparing a place for us a feast in the world to come. What more could you want in a savior, beloved, than the one who gives amazing grace? So brothers and sisters, May 2024, as long as the Lord lends us breath, may 2024 resound in our church, not with grumbling, but with grateful, heartfelt rejoicing for grace. 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 Rejoice in God's amazing grace in Christ. 
After 76 days of being lost at sea, Stephen Callahan was found. 76 days. After drifting 1,800 nautical miles, he became the only person that's known to survive over a month of being alone and being lost at sea. Luke 15 teaches us that we've all been lost. And the only real question that we need to answer is have you ever been found? Have you ever been found? Have you ever been found by the savior of sinners who came into the world to seek and to save the lost? And when you've been saved by him, when you've experienced amazing grace, a glorious transformation occurs. I am lost becomes I once was dead, but now I'm alive. I once was lost, but now I'm found. Let's pray.